welcome CFE Research Podcast, a podcast that aims to showcase the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. It made me think about the way in which home place learning and care work is denigrated, whereas in um, HE and FE, vocational learning from the workplace is, is highly prized. And yet these people have so many skills and so many qualities and so many valuable experiences, which tutors prize from their life histories, if you like. The tutors prize them, the support staff understand them, but often there are no mechanisms with HE in FE to recognise that important learning that comes from the home place. Hello and welcome to FE Research Podcast. My name is Joe Fletcher-Saxon and my partner in crime is... It's Alistair Smith. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Do you think we'll ever have to come up with a, a different kind of intro? I might have to upgrade you from partner in crime at some point. I don't know. Don't know what you could be. I, um, I know. Maybe we could flip it round and I could do it and make a mess of it three times in a row, which is why you always start anyway, isn't that, it? That is literally why I always start. Yes. Okay. Well, look, let's stop messing around because we have a very, very important guest with us on the podcast today. And it is none other than Sally Welsh former teacher, former teacher educator of many, many years and um, soon to be a PhD, um, I was going to say graduate, but it's postgraduate, you know what I mean. She's heading fast towards her viva. Um, She's already put a full um, draft of her thesis in, so we're going to be hearing all about that. So welcome to the podcast, Sally. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much and thank you for having me. Oh, no, it's great. It's great. It's great to um, speak to you, actually, because I know there's some really nuanced differences between ED and PhD that we can explore. And also this amazing programme at Lancaster you've been on in terms of education and social mm-hmm. justice. So go on, let's get cracking. Tell us a bit more about you and about um, your body of research. Well, um, I'm based in the northeast of England, but I'm doing a PhD with Lancaster University. And the programme that I'm on is called Education and Social Justice. And I suppose I chose that programme because I was interested in uh, working in FE. I was interested in issues that face some of my students, particularly mature students. Before that, I'd been an ESOL teacher. So I was interested in social justice from that point of view as well. So um, I enrolled on the programme with Lancaster. The first two years were taught modules. And then from there on in, you develop your thesis. So you go through a confirmation stage and then uh, submit a proposal and then you start working on your thesis. So in the first couple of years, I'd been very interested because of my experiences teaching mature students, but also because of my experience of being a mature student myself. I'd done my master's with the Open University. I was very interested in the way in which student parents and mature students were conceived by institutions. But what really got me, what really, really got me was how much work mature students were expected to do, how much study they were expected to do, how much paid work they were expected to do, and how much domestic and care work they were expected to do. And yet, to my mind, the only form of work that seemed to be really valued in higher education or in HE and FE was their 
paid work, their employment rather than their care work. So that kind of set me down the path of looking at um, work really from a feminist point of view. So that in a nutshell shell is where how I got to where I got to. Yeah. Oh, my mind's on fire now. All sorts I could ask you. I, you see, we should be in a pub with a beer or something. <laughs> um, yeah, my master's actually, I looked at um, the experience of w- mature women mm-hmm. returning to college-based HE. Yeah. You know, interviewed lots of them about their yeah. experiences. So, Yeah. Um, okay. So um, you set off on this track. I can see I it's a, sort of a feminist piece. And I know um, that you, although you started off um, thinking that you would... Um, approach this in terms of methods and methodology in one way it's sort of diverted so tell us a bit about that yeah of course so I was um I was interested in the experiences of mature mature HE and FE students but not only women I wanted to look at men's experiences as well so I recruited it was really hard actually the recruitment was much more difficult than I ever anticipated partly because I'd retired from the college that I worked in so that made it difficult to recruit people partly because recruiting part-time students was very difficult one of the reasons being that they have so much work to do and partly because of the effects of COVID. So what started as um, a study, a narrative study, I suppose, of um, students work and the different kinds of work that they did became actually the kind of work that they did in the home during lockdowns. Because when I started to interview them, we were in lockdown. And that's what they wanted to talk about. They really wanted to talk about their experiences in lockdown. So I did I did manage to recruit 15 participants, lots of different people, um, a lot of uh, work on feminist work on mature students is about straight women. And I was quite keen to, as I said, include men, but also to include people from the LGBTQI plus community. I wanted to look at single people, people with care and dependence. Um, I had 10 people were in full-time work. Nine of them were parents. Uh, three of them were single people. One cared for her elderly mother. So they were they were really diverse. It was a really, really diverse group of people. But what they had in common was they were all, all over 25 and they were all HE and FE students, and they were all on degrees that you could characterize as care. So I did these 15 interviews online, which wasn't the plan when I'd submitted my proposal. I just had a little sort of byline saying, oh, yes, and if the pandemic is still going on, you know, I could do them on Zoom. Not really thinking that would happen. Of course it did. And um, and I got these 15 transcripts from the interviews. Um And I asked them all sorts of stuff. I didn't just ask them about their experiences of work in the home. I also asked them about their life histories. So they were life history interviews, really, because I'm quite interested to see how they'd come up through vocational routes into HE and FE. And got these 15 uh, interviews, these 15 transcripts, and started looking at them and transcribing them. And I transcribed them fully because I wanted to include, well, partly because I used to be an English teacher, partly because I had a um, a master's in applied linguistics. So I'm very interested in language. And I wanted to see how they constructed these stories, these narratives about their experiences. Um, and I just couldn't stop myself from doing it in detail. That just was how, how I did it, I suppose. Um, 
And with these 15 enormously long transcripts, because some of the interviews were up to two hours long, I started to then um, do a thematic analysis and I found it really hard. And I had a go with Envivo and thought, this is quite cool. But then what is it actually telling me? And I just had all these colours and I think I did it with three or four of my participants. I can't remember exactly. And just sort of decided this isn't really working for me. These marvellous stories of these extraordinary people are just getting kind of collapsed down into these fragments. And actually, I want to preserve their lives and their stories in full. So I went back to, um, in 2019, I'd been lucky enough by my my manager um, at the college that I worked in in the Northeast at the time, had allowed me to go on a course at Huddersfield University. And one of the uh, speakers on this day's workshop was um, somebody called Natasha Mothner, and she talked about the listening guide. And uh, there were other researchers there. There was a, a, a researcher called Berenice Golding, and there was a researcher called uh, Sophie Al-Khaled, uh, also from Lancaster University, and different workshops. And basically, they introduced us to the listening guide, a feminist method of data analysis. And I, having tried the thematic analysis, thought, Do you know what, I'm going to go back and have another go with the listening guide, which it really fitted um, in with my theoretical framework, which was a critical feminist theoretical framework. It really kind of fitted with that. And so that's what I did. Well, I say that's what I did as if it was really straightforward. <laughs> the listening guide is actually quite a quite a complicated, multi-staged thing, which I can okay. talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, do because okay, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I've met Berenice actually. Have you? Uh, I have. She's a, an inspiring person too. Absolutely, the presence of, isn't she? <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, so tell us more about because I think both Alistair and I actually. So you know, what sort of thing? Asking for a friend. We're we're kind of at this stage of of you know having to be sure of what. I suppose process of analysis that we're going to opt for. Really, I keep flip flopping. In fact, every guest that we get on here, I think, oh, I could look at that. I do that, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. So, so tell us, give us a little sense of what the listening guide looks like, feels like. Absolutely. So, I I did think when I started off, I, I, it's interesting what you say about you know you're at that stage because I when I submitted my uh, proposal, my confirmation document, I envisaged this as a case study. But as I started to do it, I thought that's not really what I want to do. I'm not really interested in um, HE teachers and managers' views of what their lives are like. I'm interested in their stories. I'm interested in the little things because I think the everyday details of people's lives really do shed light on social relations such as gender and the gendered order within households and at work and so on. So the first thing in common with much narrative analysis, the first thing that the listening guide um, requires you to do is to uh, read. So reading one or listening one, you read the stories. And what I did was there's quite a lot of leeway. It's not, it's like a recipe. The listening guide is like a recipe, but it isn't a recipe. It's not hard and fast. So I really, I followed Natasha Mothner and Andrea Doucette um, because they took a very sort of sociological bent to the listening guide, read the transcripts and restoried them. 
So wrote out a chronological um, description, I suppose, of the life as the participant had told me. So I did that for all 15 of them. And as you do that, you're also making reflexive notes on your reactions. So that was why it was important and good that I'd included all my own reactions in the transcripts. So I annotated them. Now, traditionally, when the listening guide first came about, that was done on a sort of work worksheet. So you would have down one side, you would have the transcript. Down the other side, you would have the interviewers, sorry, the, the researchers thoughts about what was said, and there might be emotional reactions or uh, theoretical reactions or, your, you know, your own social location reactions. I didn't do it like that. I just used Word. <laughs> I just annotated it using Word because that seemed like the easiest thing to do. So 15 stories and 15 sets of annotations. And I also kept a research diary as well. So it's quite easy for me to kind of monitor some of my reflexive feelings, which actually became very important as the analysis went on. The second reading um, is the, the one that's quite, the listening guide is quite famous for, and that's the I poem reading. So the researcher creates what are called I poems, or some researchers call them pronoun poems from the transcripts. So I didn't do this with all 15 because it was so time consuming. I, I did it with I did it with my first two pilot interviews and then I selected participants who had dependents or who had care responsibilities. And what you do is you look for extracts of in the transcript which perhaps address your research questions and then you underline the phrases where the where the participant uses the pronoun I. But you can extend it and you can, you know, I, I also included we and I also included you as well, because sometimes people will say you do this, you do that. But actually, they're referring to themselves. So I um, so you underline those. So, again, I used word, but I think in the olden days, people would have, you know, literally cut and pasted it. And then you take out those phrases and you just take the pronoun and the verb and what you get is what's called an I poem and you keep them in order. And so you've got a very sort of um, linear poem, but it's all focused on that person and that and their voice. And it really attunes you to the way that that person speaks about themselves and thinks about themselves. So some researchers uh, um, Edwards and Weller, they did a thematic analysis and an iPoem analysis of the same data. And one of the arguments that they made was it's not better than a thematic analysis. And I agree with that. It's not better. I'm not claiming that it's a superior analysis, but it gives you a different insight. And it, they claim it allows you to sort of stand alongside the participant rather than gazing at because you're hearing how they speak about themselves. So an example I'll give you is when I was looking at one of my participants um, talking about why he decided to do his BA honours top-up degree, he was talking about how much he needed it, how he needed it for quite instrumental reasons. Um, he needed a better wage. He needed to get away from the place that he was working. Um, Stephen was pretty frustrated with his workplace and this degree was going to be his route out. But when I cut it away and when I cut it down to the I poem, I, I saw it rather differently because then I was able to see that actually 
some of the phrases that he was using to talk about himself reflected his feelings of inadequacy. And actually, the degree was partly about repairing some of the damage that had been done to him at school when he'd been very badly bullied and he'd been made to feel stupid. And I don't, I'm not saying I wouldn't have found that through thematic analysis, but the I poem definitely allowed me to to sort of see that other voice that Stephen was using, which I hadn't noticed. It's a pseudonym, by the way. That's not his real name. So that's the second reading. Um, and that's the kind of famous one, if you like. And then the third and fourth readings, I followed um, Natasha Mother and Andrea Doucet. So the third reading is the self in relation. So you're looking at the, the important relationships in that participant's transcript or, or that participant's life. So I used colours and I highlighted where they talked about their partners, their children, their parents, their HE and FE tutors and HE support staff who had helped them. And you could just see from the blocks of colours who the important people were in their lives, but it also en enabled you to focus on how they talked about them. And because my theoretical framework is Patricia Guthrow, who is a feminist researcher who's interested in lifelong learning and the home place, she argues that one of the overlooked aspects of, um, well, she's interested in women and I, or she research women, I'm more interested in all mature students, but she sort of says, you know, we need to value relationality. It needs to be valued. So the third reading really allowed me to focus on that. And then the fourth reading, um, Researchers look at uh, structural factors that might constrain or uh, enable participants or the researched to to make something of their lives, I suppose. So I adapted that slightly and I looked at um, I called it advantaging and disadvantaging structures in the participants lives. So that, that was definitely gender. Jeff, gender definitely came into it. But um, the way in which vocational education is viewed um Age definitely came into it. Social class definitely came into it because most of my participants identified as proud Northeast working class people. And we're very proud about that. Um, and actually coming back to the transcripts, that was something that I really wanted to honour as well. So I didn't tidy up the language. I didn't um, change non-standard uh, vocabulary into standard English. You know, if they said different instead of don't, I kept it like that. So, yeah, so that, so that was the fourth reading. And then I kind of struggled because when I talked to my supervisor about it, who isn't a listening guide specialist, she said, you know, you can put some of the eye poems in your appendices. And I thought, mm, OK. Um, and I wanted to do something creative. So I was quite influenced by Burke and Jackson's um, book about um, fem feminist I've forgotten the name of it. I'm really sorry. Anyway, I was quite interested by their book and they create texts and they create um, composite characters and create these texts from their research. And I was quite interested in doing something creative like that. And then I thought, hang on a minute, I've got these eye points. I'm going to use them. So I've included those in my thesis. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So, and not as appendices or as appendices? No, I put them in the body. Yeah, I, I this put, is a thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I put yeah. them, I, I, I was interested, I've listened to some of the previous podcasts. I was very interested in hearing about some of the creative decisions and also the sense of agency that making those creative decisions gives the researcher herself or himself. So I was yeah. quite keen to do that and I've done it. We'll see. 
We'll see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've included other data as well, as well as the iPods, because the iPods are created by me. I mean, mm. at the end of the day, they are they are my creation. And I struggled long and hard with the idea of whether or not I should seek respondent feedback from the participants. Mm. In the end, I didn't do that. It was never part of my ethics, which went through Lancaster University. I hadn't, I hadn't envisaged that I would do that. And I asked some of the participants if they would like to read the transcripts. I think eight of them said yes. And I sent them to them, but I didn't get any comments back. Mm. And seeing as my whole shtick was um, these wonderful people are just working so hard and nobody really seems to appreciate how hard they're working. And all the I felt me expecting them to do even more work. Can you just read my poems mm. and see what you think of them? Can you just mm. read my analysis? So in the end, I decided not to share the I poems with them. They are my creation. And I have to, I mean, part of the validity of my study is I, I have to stand by that and take responsibility for those really. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, do you know, that was brilliant, Sally, um, because um, we don't often hear, you know, that that level of detail that a researcher, you know, will go through in terms of, um, yeah, h- handling and, nurturing and playing with their data it's sometimes skated over isn't it in data analysis stages sometimes skated over in papers and you think well how did you do it I want to know how you did it exactly yeah Yeah, and I think I think the study of method in itself is quite an interesting or methodology is quite an interesting um yeah well I don't know whether you've listened to Beth, who we had. I did. Yes, yeah, I did. So I thought you might, might have done. Um, I think, yeah, she probably a lot of things in common there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm um, What I've been keeping as sort of part of my data, I call it moments in the field, as uh-huh. in field, field notes, but it's moments and it's things, little things that are kind of happening mm-hmm. um, and they're like stepping stones and I'm reacting to them. Mm-hmm. And I and I've been talking to my supervisor about where and how they will be, and they need to be in. Yes, at the, at the side in the moments where things happen. Somehow, yes. I need to put them um, in there. So, thank you for that. Okay, um, I'm going to hand over to um, Alistair now for a few more questions. Do you know? Quite selfishly, I was really enjoying listening to Sally. So I've like I've written hardly anything down here because of. Do you know what? Let's be honest, the reason we do the podcast is quite selfish. We get to have these chats and listen, so we'll go with that. But you've gone through with us, Sally, quite a bit about obviously how you found the data and some of the key things that, that came out from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously it takes forever to go through all your findings, but what what were your kind of headline findings then that you got from from the research? What, what sort of stood out and, as the, the key bits? One of the, I suppose, when I was looking at the interaction of care and paid work and learning in people's homes in lockdown, what it, it's not surprising, really. I don't think you'd be at all surprised to hear this. But um, whether or not people had care and dependence and they didn't or they didn't really affected their ability to study. So most of the participants said that they didn't really have a dedicated study space before lockdown. Um, They might do some assignments at the kitchen table, but they didn't have a separate space. So the people who had dependents, whether they were children or one uh, participant had an elderly relative, they saw a really significant reduction in their capacity to be able to study. I mean, it was back to the 1950s for a lot of the uh, married heterosexual women. 
And I found that there, there was this kind of script, if you like, uh, I don't know if it's a Northeast script or, or what, but a lot of the participants talked about their mum being a proper mam. And being a proper mam has a set of expectations around, you know, cooking and cleaning, but not necessarily going out to work and not necessarily um, dealing with a pandemic, which is what they were dealing with. Um, so they used, I found that some of the participants used scripts, if you like, to make sense of their experiences, but the scripts didn't always fit. So part of being a sister, part of being a proper mam, part of being a grandma meant doing care work. But there was this other thing which was overlaid into that, which was homeschooling, which nobody had anticipated. And the homeschooling became subsumed into all these other female roles. And it just pushed aside completely their capacity for learning and their autonomy that they'd found because they'd all gone into HENFE before the pandemic and most of them had enjoyed it. And suddenly it was pushed aside and, and they couldn't do it. And they found it really, really tricky. These kind of tropes, if you like, about proper mam, being, uh, being a strong woman, you know, I'm a strong woman, I should be able to cope with this. Um, I felt guilty, the guilty mam trope as well. These were used to try and make sense of what had happened to them. Um, but all that they did, I felt, was reinforce the idea that actually this care work was women's work and they need these women needed to do it. And I was just as implicated in them as that in that script as they were, because I'm a daughter. My children are grown up. Um, when I started to realize these scripts were happening, I realized that I was asking some of the women and I didn't necessarily ask the men who were fathers. I was asking them about if they felt guilty. I, I was astonished that I'd done that when I was in my forties and I was um, doing my masters. I didn't used to feel guilty for studying. I don't know. Maybe I just had it. Maybe I'm selfish. I don't know. And yet I I fell back on these kind of tropes, if you like. So they really struggled. Some of these carers really struggled in lockdown. But the people who didn't have care work, they found the lockdowns a blessing. That was a word that came up more than once. They felt lucky. They had the opportunity to study. So it wasn't all terrible. You know, the, the people who lived alone were able to study in a way that they hadn't been. They didn't have the distractions. However, their paid work colonized the workplace and started to get into all sorts of areas of the home, which it hadn't done before. Um, and as the lockdowns went on, they described how they started to reinstate boundaries between the home place and the workplace, which was happening in their homes. And some of the boundaries were quite physical. They, you know, they carved out rooms. They had one woman, her female partner, who was a handy person, built her a separate desk and this kind of thing. And they also started, what I found fascinating was some of the women started to say no to homeschooling and they started to put their foot down and say, no, this is our home. This isn't healthy. We're not doing this. Actually, we've had enough. I think the best thing of all was they didn't quit they kept going despite all of this they kept going so so those those were some of the headline figures and the other thing that I was interested in was what kind of support they used and what kind of support their FE colleges they weren't all from the same college they were from three different colleges what kind of support they valued 
I expected peer relationships would play a big part in that. And that was really variable. For some people, peer relationships were super important. For some, they weren't. But it was quite noticeable that some of the students who were on, some of the mature students, I should say, who were on full-time degrees felt stigmatized by younger students and didn't feel necessary that they had that same relationship with younger students. And that made made me start to sort of theorize and think about the importance of people feeling at home because that same script wasn't there with the part-time students who were in groups which were only made up of mature students. They seem to find much feel much more comfortable and feel much safer in those spaces than some of the uh, full-time students. But what was amazing, I think, and I, I'm sure you both experienced this as well, the holistic support that FE tutors and FE support staff provided for the students and their understanding of the students' relationships and home places was invaluable. And throughout the transcripts, um, they're studied with references to tutors and support staff who helped them, who understood, who understood what they were going through, who gave them time to you know, leave the room to go and look after their child who was having a meltdown or whatever it happened to be. Um, That was amazing. But it did make me start to think about, well, more than start to think about, it's a central prank of my thesis, really, that um, it made me think about the way in which home place learning and care work is denigrated, whereas in um, HE and FE, vocational learning from the workplace is is highly prized. And yet these people have so many skills and so many qualities and so many valuable experiences, which tutors prize from their life histories, if you like. The tutors prize them, the support staff understand them, but often there are no mechanisms within HE in HE in FE to recognize that important learning that comes from the home place, not just the learning that comes from the workplace. And I think challenging that script a little bit around employability and work readiness and appreciating that it's much bigger than that. And mature students bring much more to the table, if you like, than their workplace experience is important. And also bringing in more criticality around workplace learning as well. You know, using theory to critique some of the uh, hegemonic notions, I suppose, around employers and the importance of having the right skills for employers. So, some of the students talked, sorry, some of the participants talked about their experiences at work. One um, participant talked about a, a very upsetting experience of homophobia that she experienced at work. Two or three of the women talked about experiences of sexism that they'd experienced in the workplace. And they were understood as things which had happened to them privately. They weren't understood necessarily as structural or systemic issues. And I think we could do perhaps a little bit more in HE and in FE to address some of those issues critically and extend workplace learning beyond just it's about skills, you know, to start thinking a little bit differently about workplace learning and perhaps a little bit more creatively. Having said all of that, I'm not working in HE and FE anymore. (laughs) 
things, so things, you know, things can, um, things move on. I know that things move on very quickly, but I think moving away from individualized, individualized understandings to more structural understandings, which theory allows you to do, I think that's really important. Mm. Okay. Do you know, there's, there's just some things that you've said, I, I, scribble, I was scribbling, I said earlier, you know, I'm so busy listening. I'm, I'm not always scribbling everything down. Um, but um, you, you said a couple of things that I think are really important here. And they came out in some conversations earlier on um, today that I had with some colleagues. And it was about the impact of, of working and caring. Um, with exactly the same story as some of our own students, um, mm-hmm. as well as the role that um, tutors and support workers have in those mechanisms to support them. So you know, what you're finding isn't obviously unique to just the students that, that you've been working with. So it's, it's big, important stuff. So I suppose that leads on to the question of, well, what, what can, what can you do with the study now? You know, what, what impact do you hope it has? And, and I know we use that kind of word impact vaguely because we never really know where it's going to go, but what would you hope for it or what do you think could come from it? I've started to realise, I think, that that this um, this kind of looking at care and looking at care differently and looking at the interdependence of the private, yeah, the private sphere and the public sphere, that uh, and looking at care and the importance of care, it's part of a larger sort of t- almost. You know, they talk about the narrative turn. I think there is a care, a, a turn to care as well. So things like um, work like Madeline Bunting's Labours of Love, the journalist Madeline Bunting has just a couple of years ago wrote that. The Care Collective, um, writers like Nancy Fraser uh, writing Feminism for the 99%, uh, Bev Skeggs, people like that, they're now writing about care in a political way. And I think that's really important. And I think my work is, is a tiny little bit of that move. Um, I, and I'm I, I, if if it does help to, if it is part of that movement that kind of turns the dial a little bit and makes people think about um, care work and work that has traditionally been women's work and why that's so undervalued and why it should be valued for learning, in our case, in HENFE, then I think that's, I, I would be pleased if that happened. I suppose the only way to do that, though, is to try and disseminate that work. So, you know, taking part in this podcast this is a great opportunity to talk about my work um i suppose publishing articles i've i've had a couple of articles published that allows these voices to be heard i'm talking at um a research oh i think it's called creative research methods conference in manchester in September, well, I'm in a workshop actually with a colleague from Bristol University, and we met on Twitter. And she's also researching in FE. Well, she actually she's a doctor now, Dr. Helm. She's finished, um, and she's also used the listening guide. And that's how we connected. So we're going to run a workshop about it. We're going to use some of our anonymized data. Um, so I think, I think getting people to start considering that. It, you you just got got to sort of peck away a little bit. I'm I'm no, I'm under no illusions. I don't expect my thesis is going to have a huge impact. But if it's part of a larger turn towards it, and it allows some of these voices to be heard, then I'll be quite pleased with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's Helen Cara, isn't it? Is it Helena or Helen Cara? The um, creative yes, method. It is. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I noticed actually she's doing some nice writing retreats coming up. I've got my eye on those as well. Yes. Um, uh, What was I going to say then? 
And I got distracted by thinking about going away on a writing retreat. It was something about, oh, I know. Right. Okay. So you've worked in FE, you know the score. 20 years. That's where I am. And my body of work is about it being heard within the sector. A lot of the places you've just spoken about there are the places that FE people will not go to to Mm -hmm. necessarily read bodies Mm -hmm. of work. Mm -hmm. So how... Is is it people within the sector or the, the policymakers, the people surrounding the sector that need to hear you and how are you going to reach them? I think it's people within the sector as much as anything, actually. Um, how am I going to meet them? Don't know is the short answer. I mean, I've, I've published in... Um, the, the journal that you'll both be aware of, research in post compulsory education. Your listeners will be aware of that great yeah. journal as well. Yeah. So I would be keen to publish in there again once my thesis is out of the way. Yeah. Um. I, I've still got lots of links. I was a teacher educator in FE, yeah. so I've got loads of links and loads of bits of roots still in yeah. colleges. Um. And I have said to people, you know, if yeah, I want anybody to come and talk at your. <laughs> Day. I'm very happy to do it. That, that's the thing, isn't it? You'll need to yeah. nurture those roots again because uh, this is a the the, the 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 whole machinery of academia that you you are part of now um, doesn't necessarily lend itself to speaking to the very sector mm-hmm. where you know that you're, you're that you that you've been working with in terms of your study, and that's yeah. I agree. I think. I think. When I retired in 2020, you know, halfway through this PhD, I don't think I really appreciated how much more challenging that made doing my PhD. Now, I'm not asking for anybody to feel sorry for me because I, I know it's difficult working and managing study alongside. I mean, that's my, that's mm. the whole the whole thrust, really, of my PhD. And I've done it. I have done mm. it. Um, but it does mean that those connections that you had are not there anymore and that and that leverage I suppose that you had you haven't got anymore either um but that's the way that's what I chose to do you did you did okay well look thank you so so much for all of that I feel like I need to go back through all that with a pen again (laughs) thank you I was I was writing furiously but I feel like I need to do that again so thanks so much for your time Sally it's been a joy Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the FE Research Podcast, a Sheep Hill Studio production. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us again soon.